Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome back, Cremaholics. It's your host, Holly, and today's episode is one that is out of Canada. This case is one that I had stumbled upon while looking up a different case, and it wasn't one that I was actually familiar with. Here at Cremaholics, we love to share cases that often aren't highly covered. Today's case is about the brutal slaying of Jessica Newman. Because the case doesn't have a ton of information out there, most of today's information comes from interviews done by crime reporter Nancy Hickst with Crime Beat. I will have the full documentary linked in the description of this episode so you can watch and listen to the individual interviews with Jessica's loved ones if you wish. Without further ado, let's dive in. Jessica Ray Newman was born on July 22, 1990 in Quinell, British Columbia, Canada. Her mother, Rhonda, describes her as someone who loved to be the center of attention. So naturally, she participated in karaoke nights with her roommates. But growing up, she enjoyed the simple things in life, like baking, gaming, pony rides, and just being around her loved ones. Rhonda describes her as feisty and strong-willed. Around the time that Jessica was five, her family moved to Calgary. While in high school at the age of 16, Jessica would become pregnant with her first child, and she would give birth to a baby boy. Not long after the birth of her first son, she would become pregnant for a second time, which also was another little boy. Jessica was very involved with her children, but being such a young mother herself, her family really stepped up and helped raise her kids. As Jessica became a young adult, she started wanting more for herself, and at the age of 20, she began planning for what the future held. She wanted to go back to school and make a life for herself and her children, and she wanted to eventually find love and settle down with someone. So when Jessica met Kevin Rublitz, everything seemed to fall into place for her. She was absolutely head over heels for Kevin and loved and enjoyed being around him. The couple quickly moved in together, and it wasn't but a matter of time that the couple had some exciting news to share. They were expecting a baby. On August 1st, 2012, she gave birth to another beautiful baby boy. Jessica's family was so excited for the direction that her life was going in. She seemed to be finally building the life that she wanted. But her fairy tale was soon shadowed by lies and cheating. During Jessica's pregnancy, Kevin had cheated on her. And obviously, as anyone would be, Jessica was extremely upset and hurt by this and wasn't sure what to do. She stuck around despite the infidelity, but in August of 2014, when their son was just two years old, their relationship would officially end. During this argument that ultimately ended their relationship, Jessica had taken off an engagement ring he had recently given her. She told him when he was ready to treat her the way she deserved, she would take the ring back. But Kevin ended things and kicked her out of the home that they shared together. 
This was just the beginning of their custody battle for their son. One afternoon after court, Jessica called her mother Rhonda screaming and crying and was so upset that Rhonda couldn't understand her. When she finally got her to calm down enough to explain what had happened, she told her mother the awful news that she had lost custody of her son. Kevin Rublitz had made accusations against Jessica in court that she was an alcoholic drunk who wasn't fit to care for their son. In the Crime Bee interview, Rhonda states that Jessica was absolutely not an alcoholic, but despite her not being one, she still had to go to meetings and visits with counselors for them to sign off on a piece of paper stating that she wasn't, which she then had to take that paper back to the court before she was even granted visitation rights to see her son. And we all know how long the court processes can take. This isn't something that happened overnight. And though I could not find the exact timeline of the events of this, I am going to say it was likely a several months long process for Jessica to even be given permission to see her son. After Jessica and Kevin had gotten into that final argument that caused their breakup officially, Kevin kicked her out of the home. So she was essentially couch surfing for a while, but to prove to the courts that she had a stable place to bring her son home to, she ended up moving in with a friend of hers named Michael Hahn. Michael was a single man who lived with his son, but he had a basement area where he told Jessica she could turn it into a place for herself. He and Jessica became close and she really opened up and confided in him about her relationship struggles with Kevin. In the Crime Beat episode on Jessica, Michael talks openly about how Jessica told him she was just playing it nice and cool with Kevin until she was able to get custody back. It was during this time while living with Michael that Jessica began dating again. She met Ryan Chamberlain, who was also going through a similar situation with a custody battle, so the two of them really hit it off and connected, and they also had a lot of things in common. Rhonda recalls Ryan as being someone who was really good for Jessica. He was a great parent to his son and all around seemed like a good person for her to move on with. Jessica and Ryan would spend their weekends together and come Monday morning, Ryan would take Jessica back home while on his way to work. On Monday, March 10th, 2015, Jessica woke up at Ryan's house like she did most weekends. After the two got ready for the day, Ryan drove Jessica back to her place, but before getting out of the car, the two exchanged I love yous and sentiments about having a good day. And then off Ryan went to work. Throughout the day, though, they texted each other. Jessica was feeling a little nervous and uneasy about a court appearance that she was going to be making the following day, which should finally grant her 50-50 custody of her son. Later that evening, Jessica had to work the late shift at the steakhouse called The Water Grill. When Jessica worked the closing shift at the grill, she would usually get home around 10 p.m. Michael was surprised that Jessica didn't come home, but he assumed that she had gone to stay at a friend's house to kind of keep her mind off of the following day's court appearance. The next morning, March 11, 2015, Michael texted her to tell her good luck today at court. After he got off work, he texted Jessica again to ask if the two of them were still going to go to the gym together. Both texts went unanswered. 
Wednesday, still no reply from Jessica, and he felt a little bit concerned about it, but he had assumed that maybe something didn't go her way in court and that she just wanted to be left alone. He assumed, again, that she was at a friend's house. Come Friday, Michael still hadn't heard from her, nor had she returned to the home. So he decided he would go into the water grill and see her and make sure that she was all right. When he arrived there, he told the manager that he was there to see Jessica, but the manager told him that she hadn't shown up for work that day, nor had she the day before, which later that day, Michael had to go into work himself in the evening. And at that point, Kevin Rublitz stopped by the home to drop off their son to Jessica, which Jessica obviously wasn't there. So he left his phone number with Michael's son and told him to have his dad call him when he got home. When Michael called Kevin, Kevin asked if he had seen or heard from Jessica. Kevin stated that he couldn't get a hold of Jessica and she never showed up for the court hearing on that Tuesday morning, which Michael told him no and that he went into her work and she also hadn't been at work either. Nobody had seen or heard from Jessica for four days. Michael decided at this point that he was going to call 911. He told the dispatcher about what was happening and the whole entire situation, and the dispatcher told him that she would go ahead and call various different places to check to see if maybe Jessica could be there. She called hospitals, she called the morgue, jails, and nothing. The dispatcher ended up sending out a couple officers to Michael and Jessica's home. While they were there, Michael provided the officers with a picture of Jessica and filled out a missing persons report. That evening when the officers were at the house, they also searched and looked around inside of Jessica's room. A couple days later, they ramped up the search and went back to Michael's and began canvassing the neighborhood for any kind of clues. As weeks would go by and no Jessica, the case was handed over to Detective Dave Sweet. He began digging into Jessica's financial records as well as her phone records to see if they could trace her whereabouts and if maybe she was still using her bank or phone. He found that on March 10th, 2015, Jessica's phone would go black sometime between 9 and 10 p.m. and then was never used again beyond that and the same would be for her bank. While attempting to retrace Jessica's last known steps, Detective Sweet learned something new. On the night of March 10th, after Jessica got done with her shift at work, Jessica's boss watched as she left the grill and got into the van with someone and drove off. They were able to figure out the identity of the individual she had left with, and it was her ex-boyfriend, Kevin Rublitz. When they questioned Kevin about him picking her up, he said that the two of them had gone for coffee to discuss their upcoming court hearing the following morning. There was zero issues between them during the visit, and he told detectives that his relationship with Jessica was friendly and the two were finally on common grounds when it came to raising their son. After grabbing coffee, he dropped Jessica off at her residence that she shared with Michael around 10 p.m., He, however, did not wait until she got inside the home before driving off. So investigators went back and questioned Michael once more to see if his story was the same. 
which it was. He repeated everything that he had said the first time he reported Jessica missing. He hadn't seen her since March 10th when he dropped her off at work. He expected her to be home around 10 p.m., but she never came home. So between the two guys who were the last to see her, something wasn't quite adding up. It was obvious that at least Michael's story about taking Jessica to work was true. She did, in fact, work her shift that night. But beyond her leaving after work with Kevin Rublitz, the rest is really murky. After nearly eight weeks of Jessica being missing, detectives finally got the call they had been waiting for and the call that her family had been dreading. A body had been found in a ditch just outside of Calgary by a paving crew who had been working on the road. The body was that of a woman with blonde hair and a very distinguishable tattoo up her spine. And it was very apparent that she was a victim of a brutal murder. Detective Sweet was the one who positively identified the body as Jessica Newman's. Investigators worked tirelessly around the clock trying to slowly eliminate all of the possible suspects that they had on their list. They conducted many more searches, including forensic searches of Jessica's home that she had shared with Michael, as well as her most recent boyfriend's home. They checked alibis and re-interviewed people. The way in which Jessica was murdered is what really made detectives zero in on a smaller pool of people. Jessica was savagely murdered. She was so violently attacked, which seemed so personal. Who within Jessica's friend pool and people she knew would want her dead? Whoever it was had to have been so upset with Jessica. They narrowed down their 14-person suspect list down to three. Michael, the roommate, Ryan, the boyfriend, or Kevin, the ex-boyfriend and father to her youngest child. They thought that perhaps Michael could have attacked Jessica because he was romantically interested in her and she turned him down. Michael had allowed investigators in his home many times to search. They also searched his car, but they then asked to search his computers to see if maybe they could see what his activity was during the night Jessica disappeared. Michael consented and allowed investigators full access to anything and everything they wanted to look at. Ryan Chamberlain was also asked the same. He also completely consented to them to look through anything and everything. They also searched his home, his car, and his electronics. During all of this time of investigators working on figuring out who killed Jessica, they received a letter that was written supposedly on behalf of Ryan Chamberlain confessing to the murder of Jessica. Both Michael and Ryan, despite the phony letter, would be ruled out as suspects. Kevin Rublitz was all that remained. Kevin also cooperated. He granted access to search his vehicle the very first time the detectives had even talked to him. But what they noticed after several times of speaking with Kevin is that his story kept changing just the slightest bit. He now states that while dropping Jessica off back at her place, she leaned over and gave him a kiss on the cheek, which had really stirred up some emotions within him and regret of the ending of their relationship. So he apparently went for a long drive. 
Investigators asked if they could have Kevin's phone for forensic analysis, to which he agreed. But he asked investigators if he could hold on to it for a few more days because it was a work phone and that he would return it to them a few days later. Investigators allowed him to keep his phone, and the day he was due to bring it in, he called them to let them know that he had accidentally lost the phone at a house party the night before, so he no longer had it. Investigators worked tirelessly on Jessica's case. They did anything and everything they could to ensure that Jessica's murderer would be arrested, and he was. On June 26, 2015, Kevin Rublitz was arrested for the murder of Jessica Newman and was charged with second-degree murder. In November of 2017, Kevin Rublitz would go on trial for murder. It was during this murder trial that Jessica's family would finally learn how she was murdered. Prosecutors laid it out there that the couple was in a custody dispute, and this gave Kevin Rublitz the perfect reason to murder Jessica. It was very clear that this was a crime of passion and a crime with high emotions. As it was revealed that Jessica's cause of death was that she had sustained a total number of 75 stab wounds. As the story unfolded for jurors, it was revealed that despite both Jessica and Kevin seeing other people, they were still somewhat romantically involved with each other. So much so that Kevin had actually given Jessica her engagement ring back. Investigators were able to access text messages that had taken place between Jessica and Kevin, where they discussed going out to a spot where nobody would see and essentially have a makeout session inside the van that Kevin drove. It was during this romantic encounter that investigators believed that Kevin brutally stabbed Jessica and then left her half-naked body out in the remote area where they drove out to for this makeout session. Jury then would hear that Kevin Rublitz did in fact allow police to search his car in the days after she went missing. Detective Sweet describes this search on Crime Bean, stating it was a general search, nothing too invasive. It was more of a looking around inside and outside of the car. Did anything suggest a murder had taken place? Did it look like it had been cleaned up? Was anything missing? All of which initially they felt like it looked fine. The car wasn't newly cleaned out. There was tools and things in the vehicle that didn't appear odd or out of place. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. But after Jessica's body had been found, investigators once again asked Kevin to search his van. But he no longer had it. Jessica was found on May 4, 2015. The following day after her body was found just outside of Calgary by those workers, Kevin takes the van to the wrecking yard. Thankfully, investigators were able to get their hands on the van and a full forensic examination was able to be performed. The van was completely taken apart piece by piece. Every seat was taken out, screws were removed, the carpet was removed, and then they found something. Blood had been found in the bolting mechanism that attached the passenger seat to the floorboards of the vehicle. Though he did a decent job cleaning it up, he wasn't able to get all of it. The blood was positively identified as belonging to Jessica Newman. 
He was found guilty of the second-degree murder of 24-year-old Jessica Newman. Months would go by before he would receive his sentence, and in early 2018, he would be sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 17 years. He tried to appeal his conviction in early 2020, but it was denied. Jessica's children are now faced living life without their mother. There is absolutely no winner in this situation. Jessica has lost her life, and though justice has been served and the man responsible is behind bars, she is still not here to watch her three boys grow up. Her absence leaves a tremendous hole in her family's life. If you haven't already joined our private Facebook group, be sure to do so by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. In there, we share all informations and pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share anything and everything true crime in the group. You can also follow us on Crimeaholics.podcast on both TikTok and on Instagram. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's episode. Until next time, be aware and take care. Thank you.